G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. You may have heard the perception that many hold that this is a post-Christian age. We might appreciate the deep roots and influence of Christian faith that have shaped Australian society. But neither are we ignorant of the decline of Christian influence as Australia has become more and more multicultural. There'll be always those who are Christian champions in the battle for freedoms. It may be time to rethink what it means to be Christian in a time in our history when we confront what for some is a decline of Christendom. Throughout Australia and the Western world, society is increasingly in conflict with Christian values, especially around things like sex and family life. Well, our special guest today says Christians may need to accept what we might call the end of Christendom and declining influence and reorientate for the future. He says it's more important than ever to focus on our witness as a city set on a hill, demonstrating Christ by the stability of our family life and the quality of our community in an age of fragile families and increasing loneliness. Well, our special guest today is Professor Patrick Parkinson. He's the Dean of Law at the University of Queensland. He's a specialist in family law, child protection and law and religion. Uh, Professor Parkinson was previously the chair of the Family Law Council 2004 to 2007 and president of the International Society of Family Law 2011 to 2014. He's going to be addressing family and faith in a multicultural society in a series of prestigious lectures that are coming up at the University of New South Wales on the 22nd, 23rd and 24th of September. And they will be live streamed. I'll tell you how you can live stream those. But I do want to say to you, you can feel free to engage in our conversation today. Shortly, we'll open our talkback line. You might have a question or comment. Other than that, there is a Facebook question today that you can respond to. The question I'm asking, is the age of Christian morals and values finished in multicultural Australia? Think carefully through that question. There's a number of people responding already. That's uh, somewhere around where our conversation will go today. But uh, Professor Patrick Parkinson, a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you very much, Neil. Patrick, I wonder, uh, this conversation we're having over this next hour, I wonder whether we might start with a really important foundation, and that is your perception of what family life is like in Australia right now, because uh, children are the ones who are our future. Uh, They are the ones who are being influenced by the status of Australian families. What's your perception, given that you work in this area of family law and child protection, and uh, these ideas as they revolve around our children? 
Sure, Neil, thank you. Look, just to give people a little bit of background, I've spent most of my career in one way or another concerned with the well-being of kids, working on child sexual abuse issues and a whole range of other issues concerning children's well-being. And I am really concerned about what is happening um, for our young people now, children and young people now, compared to, say, 20 years ago. And some of the indicators are, Anil, that the numbers of kids experiencing serious mental health problems is doubling every 20 years or so, serious mental health problems. The numbers who are getting serious depression, suicidal feelings and so on is increasing. And, you know, particularly around teenage girls, the number of teenage girls who are self-harming compared to, say, 20 years ago. So what we're seeing is a sharp decline in the well-being of our kids. And if you look at all the research, look, there's many reasons for this, many explanations, and you can't pick on just one. But one of them is the instability of our family life, that kids are just much less likely than they were 30 years ago to grow up with two biological married parents. That's just a fact. Wow. Instability in family life. And when we talk that issue, we might say, why? As you say, there are multiple dimensions here that we could pick up on. I wonder whether we might come around some of the changes that have happened in Australian society, perhaps over the last 50 years, so far as marriage goes. And uh, thinking back to the 1970s, easy divorce. Uh, What happened uh, since then? And of course, back to 2017, the marriage vote that that uh, uh, that deconstructed what we thought marriage meant, and that's now a confusing issue. What are your thoughts on the reasons why this might be the case? Do you know, Neil, whenever Christians talk about this, my perception is we focus on no-fault divorce and we focus on same-sex marriage as the big issues. Um, and I understand both of those. They're both big issues. But, you know, the really big issue is that we have broken down the distinction between marriage and living together outside of marriage for heterosexual people. And this has been a change over 20 years, which has gone almost unnoticed and unargued in in Australia. But what it means is that increasingly in society, we've been saying marriage doesn't matter. Marriage doesn't matter. You can just live together and it's all just the same. Do you know that since 2008, There's not a single legal difference between being married and living with somebody once you've lived together for two years. It's a single legal difference. And this has been a really big change in our society. You know, go back 20 years, you'd have a lot of people living together before they got married. But what's happened in the last decade or two is that more and more people are living together without ever getting married and having children. Um, together without being married. And that's a big change from 30 years ago. Well, children being born outside of a marriage, and uh, you're including in that de facto, and uh, no doubt there'd be people who would want to argue that, hey, de facto is as good as marriage. But you're talking about a distinction here, and I can't help but thinking the distinction around what marriage is and what de facto is comes down to being a spiritual issue and something that Christians are concerned with that the wider society is not. Absolutely. And the idea that marriage doesn't matter is widely held, but the statistics 
disprove that. What I've seen from my research is that, of course, some marriages break up. My own first marriage did. I haven't had a, you know, an entirely happy history of family life either. But um, typically, what you find is that. Um, marriages don't break up easily, that people really do take their vows seriously and do try to work it out. And, you know, it only takes one person to to decide that they don't want to be married any, any, anymore and the other one's got no choice in the matter. So that's, you know, there is a, a reasonably high divorce rate, but it's been pretty stable, even declining in the last few years. When people live together outside of marriage, the evidence is that they just break up much more easily, much more quickly. There's an astonishing survey done a few years ago. We, they tracked about 14,000 people, okay, year after year after year. And to give you an idea, back in, say, 2002, they would ask people to rate how they felt about their partners. And the good news is that most of people said they'd rated their partners 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10, which is good. But if you then follow them five years later, you discover that a lot of those who are in de facto relationships have now broken up. The nine out of 10 goes down to zero out of 10 within a couple of years. Whereas for those who are married, yes, some might have broken up down the track, but it would have taken many, many more years before they finally gave up on it. I'm interested in the idea that you say that when people do get married, they take their vows seriously. And my mind wanders to the idea that so many more people today get married uh, by the, you know, at the registry office, not in the church, where the church vows might look a whole lot different to the sort of vows that people make when they are getting married. Any thoughts around the commitment that people are making and how that might have changed over the years, Patrick? I think it's it's fair to say that um, you can't generalise. I mean, we are living in a multicultural society, as you said in your introduction, and one of the things about the multicultural society is that if you look at the ethnic minority communities, you look at the Islamic community, for example, they have very strong values around marriage, <laughs> very strong, um, very committed to those marriage vows. Um, but the majority of our community are secular and don't have a strong faith of any kind. And yes, I, I would think there's an enormous variation in what they feel they're committing to when they get married. But marriage still matters. Marriage has meaning. And when a young woman says, but I really want to get married, there's something deep behind that, Neil, that echoes the Christian understanding of marriage as being for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, till death us do part. And that memory of what marriage is is still prevalent in our society, and that's a very good thing. And those sentiments in the vows have rock-solid foundation in Christian faith. And so, interestingly here, Patrick, you're advocating for something pretty significant in our conversation today, and uh, I feel wonderfully privileged uh, to have uh, seen some of your notes that you'll be addressing when you speak at the new college lectures coming up, but you're advocating for a return to a long-standing Christian tradition of living out the gospel by our actions, and this really comes around how seriously we take our marriage, and our parenting responsibilities. Yes, but not only our marriage and parenting. 
About 25 to 30% of all young people who are, say, 18 years of old to, at this time will never have a life partner. I'm not saying that they will, will marry and, and divorce. I'm saying they'll never actually find a life partner in the first place. So we are dealing with a much more varied society than, say, 30, 40 years ago, where most people would end up marrying at one stage of their lives. And we're going to be dealing with an increasing problem of loneliness. And so it's very important, I think, for the churches not just to focus on marriage and parenting. They are critical, but also to look after single people and to build a strong sense of community where we all care for one another, whatever our marital status is. Wow. Along with this conversation today, uh, with regard to uh, returning to a long-standing Christian tradition, it comes the challenge that we're up against here in Australia, where our government is talking about how religious freedoms might look into the coming time. And so wonderful to have your insights here because there is a challenge, isn't there? Church freedoms are under threat. And so when we talk about a return to teaching biblical marriage and family or concern for our local communities in the way that we might do as Christian believers, meeting the needs of the poor, meeting the needs of the vulnerable, looking after people no matter what background they come from, we're actually under threat even to the freedoms that we have to be able to teach that biblical foundation. What are your concerns here, Patrick? They are enormous, Neil. <laughs> um, I, one thing you didn't say in your introduction, I'm sure you know, is that I am chair of an organization called Freedom for, for Faith. Uh, indeed, I co-founded it. Jim Wallace and I co-founded it about uh, 10 years ago. Um, and at that stage, we could see the writing on the wall, you know, just in the far distance, we could see things happening. And we thought we'd have 10, 20 years even in, our, in Australia before we were under serious threat. But, you know, within a couple of years of founding Food and for Faith, I was seeing those serious threats. What are those threats? They're not to our Sunday worship. They're not. There is no possibility, in my view, that we will ever be restricted in Australia in worshipping together on a Sunday. The problem is on Mondays, right? The problem is in our working lives. The problem is in our Christian schools. The problem is in our Christian welfare organizations. And the biggest threat which I have been fighting for the last many years is around employment. Why should not a Christian school insist on employment employing Christian staff. It may sound like it's, it's obvious. You know? An environmental group, Greenpeace or somebody, would want to have somebody employed by that organization which believes in the values of the organization and believes there's a climate change crisis and so on and so forth. Um, but there is serious pressure coming around the world against the idea that a Christian school could advertise and insist on appointing Christian staff or a Christian welfare organization, or even your local church um, advertising for an administrative person, you know, like, a, like a, a personal assistant or a secretary. And the argument comes, but why do they need to be a Christian? They're just organizing the newsletter and typing and answering phone calls. You don't have to be Christian for that. Well, we understand why you have to be Christian for that. But that is one of the major battles which um, we are fighting and need to secure 
for a future multi-faith society. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Our special guest this hour is Professor Patrick Parkinson, the Dean of Law at the University of Queensland, and our conversation around issues of family and faith in a multicultural society. And with the idea that churches need to return to a biblical view of what it is on marriage and family. And uh, Patrick Parkinson, uh, there's a challenge here for some who'll say, well, aren't we in the battle? And we've started talking about religious freedom. And as listeners to this program will know, we talk about a lot of dimensions where this battle is being fought and it's a fiery battle that's going on. The idea of being able to walk and chew gum at the same time, an old expression from a former US president, this idea that you've got to be someone who builds deep understanding depth into biblical marriage and family, at the same time fights the battles uh, that are about the culture that we're in. What are your thoughts around that? I think God gives us all different callings, Neil. And it's not the same people who need to walk and chew gum at the same time. It's the church as a whole which has to. So there's a lot of different dimensions of this. Um, The organization which I I chair, Freedom for Faith, has, I think, had a very significant amount of success in um, its profile and the respect in which we are are held in Canberra and amongst politicians. we are specialists. We are a legal think tank, and you know a lot of this sort of work that is um, is around religious freedom. It needs to be done by people like myself and others who work together as, as experts, looking at bills, putting proposals forward, making the arguments. Um, people can support us. We'd be very grateful for for that. You can find um, freedomforfaith.org.au is our website. Um, we do need that support, but ultimately, um, we are the front line around religious freedom issues. The other thing that people can do, and I think is really important, is to be talking to local MPs, both state and federal, and your senators, um, you know, federal senators, saying, this is a really important issue for us, and what are you doing about it? And it doesn't have to be because there's some issue in the news, you know? Israel Folau or um, a bill before Parliament. I think we need to be making this clear to politicians when it's not in the news that it needs to be on their radar. Okay? Yeah. Patrick, let's come back for a few moments here to just how serious all of this is. And yes, we've got that battlefront on religious freedom. Uh, But we were talking about marriage. We're talking about the way families are changing in our multicultural society. We might even include there a secularized multicultural society. But one of the outcomes in that, which you seem to identify here, is where the vulnerabilities are coming from. If you don't have strong families, you have an increase in mental health issues. Now, this is where... 
this is speaking the language of our society. People love to talk about mental health, and sometimes that's a yeah. that's a big that's a big issue uh, to talk about mental health because it has so many dimensions as well. But if we don't address these issues in church and family life, we're not going to be able to demonstrate that there is a way to overcome some of these mental health issues. Give us some insights here into just the seriousness of engaging in here because of what church needs to do to change. Church needs to lead by example. And while we may love to think that uh, all of our members um, hold deeply to Christian values around sex and marriage, the evidence does not support that. Um, so we need, in a sense, to re-evangelize the church, re-persuade the church of the wisdom of Christian values around sex and marriage. That's got to be a be a, be a foundation. Let me explain a little bit about why um, family breakdown leads to such adverse consequences for so many young 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 people. It's true that. It's not the divorce itself which makes a difference so much as the conflict between the parents. But that conflict continues long after a breakup. The fact that you break up with somebody doesn't actually mean the conflict ends. It can shift into new arguments about child support, new arguments about relocation. You know, mum lives in Brisbane, but dad wants to... Uh, sorry, mum and dad live in Brisbane, but mum wants to move to live with a new partner in Melbourne. And suddenly, dad's not going to be seeing the kids as regularly. So breakups don't end marriages, just transform the arguments. And often the conflict continues years after the breakup. Another thing people don't realize, but the chances of a child being sexually abused by a stepfather or mum's boyfriend are many, many times as high as their biological father. It's quite unusual, quite rare even, comparatively, for biological fathers to abuse their own children compared to grandfathers, uncles, and you know, step-parents. So breakups and new partnerships expose children to a greater risk of abuse. And all of this translates in a complex way, as you can imagine, into greater mental health problems for children and young people. So we've got to start at the source. We've got to help promote safe, stable and nurturing families. Oftentimes we're familiar with that illustration of a fence at the top of the cliff or the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. And I wonder whether you've got thoughts here on whether the church might be more orientated to the idea of caring for people who've already fallen off the cliff rather than building that fence, building those boundaries at the top of the cliff that keep people and marriages and families from actually going over the cliff? Yeah, I'm thinking that as we move into the next decade or two decades of life as Christians in Australia, we are going to have to strengthen our foundations, that is, strengthen um, family and community life within the church in order to be able to help those at the bottom of the cliff, Neil. So the way I'm putting it is we've got to turn inward in order to turn outward. And the turning inward means re-persuading our people of the virtue and wisdom of Christian teaching, building strong communities, caring for each other, supporting families and marriages which are in trouble. 
these things are crucial to our witness because if we look pretty similar to the world around us, what witness do we do we do we have, and what capacity do we have to help others if we are struggling with so many problems in our own lives? There's an issue here, isn't there? The fruit of our lives. Others are looking at our lives. Sometimes we think our witness is just the way we speak of a message of the gospel, but there is an a lived experience, a practical experience of how we live our lives, which in itself is a very, very powerful statement. It in itself is a part of this gospel because it demonstrates the fruit of a transformed life. That's the sort of thing I suspect you're saying there needs to be a little more of that that is on display for the wider community. There absolutely is. And, I mean, I became a Christian when I was 17 years old, and one of the things which really impacted me was seeing the love in the church that I, you know, went along to, the way the young people, which is when I went to join the youth group, um, looked after each other and cared about each 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 other. It was powerful. Um and the joy that they that they had. I mean these are fundamentals of the of Christian witness, are they not? They are. Professor Patrick Parkinson is our guest. Let's spend a few moments unpacking what for some is a very uncomfortable concept. The idea that we might be living in a post-Christian age. As you think through issues like that, what comes to mind for you as the sort of things that we need to understand about being post-Christian? Well, the first thing to say, particularly um, in Australia, is that the biggest issue is not that we're a multi-faith society. The biggest issue is that we are an increasingly secular society. <laughs> and it is the, the problems and the threats of secularism which worry me much more than the fact that we have now a diversity of different faiths. Let me put it into perspective for you, Neil. Take any issue which has been exercising Christians over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, no-fault divorce, abortion, euthanasia, same-sex marriage, a range of other issues. We have lost every single one of those battles, and we have lost those battles convincingly. That is, it's not just been, you know, 51 against 49. We have lost those battles convincingly. And that's very hard for Christians to accept. We want to believe that Christianity is the foundations of our legal system. We want to believe that, as uh, I think the Catholic Church in particular, that it's got huge influence because so many people identify as Catholic. But the fact is that, you know, on an average Sunday, way less than 10% of the, con- of the population are, are in church. So we've got to be realistic now. How can we influence a society and how can we live as Christians when... That society has moved away from Christian values, has trashed Christian values on many of these issues. And while some might say, don't we have a Christian Prime Minister? Don't we have a Christian Governor-General? Those things are important, but we also have state premiers who function on a different level to our federal leadership. Not too many of those are claiming the title Christian. So the idea of losing battles, uh, this is something that is likely to be ongoing. More battles ahead to lose, but it doesn't mean that we ought not to be engaging in those battles. And I, I don't think listeners will hear you saying that, but but we are now getting used to losing battles, Patrick. 
Yeah, and and so um, one of the things that um, I'm concerned about is to uh, ensure the capacity of churches and Christian organizations to continue to employ Christian staff, to maintain their values, to keep with their teaching. Those are battles which can and should be won. So it's not that we've lost every battle. What I'm saying is that the ones in which we seek to dictate for the society what its morality should be are the battles we are losing. And the response which comes from politicians is, well, if you don't, you know, want to have an abortion, you don't have to. But you shouldn't be stopping somebody else who does, doesn't share your values from uh, doing that. And that, that sort of argument comes again and again and again. And, and yes, there are Christian politicians, the Christian prime minister and so on. I'm very grateful for that. And I think God raises up all sorts of people. But we've got to look at the big picture that even a Christian party leader has to hold together a very diverse party, has to get things through parliament, has to win elections, and they cannot move too far from the centre of where the society is. Okay, and if our morality looks no different to the secular values of our wider society, the church has nothing to say. doesn't matter who's in charge, doesn't matter what party's in power, the church has nothing to say if it doesn't get issues around marriage, parenting and family right for the long term because we're talking about lifelong pursuits and just reflecting back to your thoughts a little earlier where you said because we get this so wrong, we're causing lifelong pain in the lives of those families that are falling to pieces. Just this idea of having nothing to say if we don't get it right, this is an important element, Patrick. I think it's a critical element. Let me take you back to um, when I was about 20 years old, I had the privilege of going to Israel. And I stood on the hill where people believe the Sermon on the Mount was preached. And it was in that Sermon on the Mount that Jesus said about the church, you are a city set on a hill. And if you look behind you, as it were, um, not down towards the Sea of Galilee, but behind you in the other direction from the sermon, from from the mountain where that sermon was preached, you will see a 4,000-year-old city called Zaphet. Um, It was probably built up a lot in the Middle Ages, but it has existed for three to 4,000 years. And Jesus probably was referring, I think, to that city. That city is set in a cliff, Neil. It's so visible. You can see it from miles and miles and miles around. It is, an, it is visible to a broad um, proportion of the people of northern Israel. And that's what we need to be, a city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. Let me bring in here the idea that when we talk about the church, for some people, That's even an airy-fairy term because we think somewhere out there is the church and we think denominations. We think of church leaders, uh, people who walk down aisles in robes and uh, pronounce their thoughts on, on truth. But when we talk church here, I suspect you're saying this comes right down to the local church. Let's forget brands and things for a few moments. Each local church community has some responsible responsibility here. And uh, and I know that you like a terminology called social franchising. 
that brings this right back down to the community level where all of us are in our local church environment. Give us some thoughts here as to what we ought to be thinking when we think of the church in what we might term a post-Christian age. Everything is going to depend, Neil, on the quality of the local church. Now, let me give you an example of a church I was part of a few years ago. It had a spare little house on its on, on its land, and it turned it into a family support service for the local area. People who were um, going through difficulties in, in need, not severe crisis end, but you know the the less crisis driven end. We provided support for them. We funded it out of our local um, church funds. We also ran um, divorce workshops for people going through uh, through a breakup um, about you know how they could adjust to divorce and move on with their lives afterwards. And these were both services for the local community. Now, what's happening in England is really interesting. Um, let's suppose that a church has a vision to set up a food bank. What's happening in England is that um, organizations are actually developing a model for how to do a food bank. They have a model um, legal framework for it, and maybe a model logo, a model um, set of um, guidelines or leaflets or whatever it is. And that's developed by somebody, and then it's franchised to the local church. So the church in, say, Chester says, we want to have a food bank. And they've got a model. They don't have to reinvent the wheel. They don't have to work it all out from scratch. They've got a model which somebody else has developed, which they can apply in their local community. That's social franchising. And it reinvigorates the social outreach of a local church rather than saying it's the responsibility of the welfare arm of the local church or what the government is setting up to try and meet the needs as people have fallen off the cliff as we were talking a little earlier. But this idea of doing these practical things that support people in the community, uh, that's a part of the local church outreach here, Patrick. Yeah, we've got to scratch where people itch. There's no point talking to people about the gospel if they've got no concept of biblical Christianity, no residual memory of, you know, of the teachings of Jesus. Um, we've got to scratch where they itch. And where they are itching is around um, problems in, the, in their, their lives or concerns about climate change or concerns about other, other issues. And we need to speak into their lives in that, in that way. And that's how I think we will rebuild the influence of the church, one person after another, who is touched by our love and our concern in a practical way. And those people will carry that testimony for their entire lives. Let me ask you, let's get into something a little bit controversial here, because we talk about freedom to be a church a biblical church, a church that can stand for the truth of the Bible. And, of course, we know that's under threat. And coming back to these ideas of our religious freedom that the government is still debating, in a multicultural society, there's lots of different faiths. We are Christians. We're a part of Christianity. But there are other people from other religious faiths, they also are under threat. I wonder whether you've got any thoughts here 
about how the Christian the Christian foundation uh, needs to be bolstered, even walking arm in arm with other faiths. Now, that's this is controversial as we talk about this, but what are your thoughts here uh, for the way that Christians and other faiths are all under threat at this time? It shouldn't be controversial. The reality is that the threats to religious freedom are largely from a secular society which doesn't understand the importance of or doesn't share the values that we have. And those values are around things like um, sex and marriage, but they're also the value of human life and so on. Now, um, we have allies in other faiths. The Orthodox Jewish community has a very strong commitment to um, traditional values. The Islamic community does. The the Mormon church does. Um, and where we have common values and common concerns, there is enormous power in us walking hand in hand. And we saw this um, just in November last year, Neil, when uh, Freedom of Faith was amongst a number of organizations and churches which got together with the Islamic community and the Jewish community uh, together to write to the Prime Minister around an issue concerning religious freedom. And I can tell you what an impact that had in the Prime Minister's office when he had leaders of so many faiths all saying the same thing. As Christians, we might understand that arm in arm between the various faiths as being co-belligerents, the ones who will face a common enemy. And uh, when I talk enemy, uh, we're talking about a secular society which in itself has become religiously driven here. Uh, So this idea of maintaining religious freedom, it by necessity has to include all of the faith groups that might be in existence in Australia and in some ways for Christians to humble themselves to be a part of what would be a co-belligerent activity. Uh, That's something that is a challenge for some, but I guess that is the way forward, Patrick. I really think it is, but can I just say I'm not comfortable with the language of warfare and belligerence. You see, what we are fighting against is typically the views of a tiny minority, but a tiny minority who have outsized influence um, in political parties and in, in the media, on the ABC and so on. You know, about 6% of the population influence the uh, policies for the nation as a whole. About 6% who take an interest in politics, are involved in political parties, engage on social media. And so you get tiny minorities who can challenge religious freedom. When the vast majority of the, pop, pop, of, of, the, of the population, if they were asked the question, would be horrified by the changes. So that's who we need to combat. Yep. During COVID, this is a significant issue that has hit the wider society. Uh, It's economically uh, crippling our nation. It is doing all sorts of challenging things to churches. Some are growing. Others are feeling the pinch when it comes to issues around COVID-19. But what a lot of churches will be doing is saying, what does it look like when we're back 
uh, into a new normal. And new normal looks, you know, it's still to be debated, still to be to come to the fore as to what that might look like. But as churches are talking about their own vision for the future, uh, what, is, what are your thoughts here around the sorts of things that they might be talking about in, as, as they're creating a strategy for a, a pathway forward? Neil, the new normal is almost certainly going to be a poorer society than it was in 2019. In other words, the economic impact of COVID-19 is going to be long-lasting. We will be decades before we pay off the debt of which we've just built up in the last three months. There are worrying signs of um, division between China and the rest of the, of the world, which is going to change the economy in very significant ways. So I think we are almost where we were with Joseph. You know, Joseph had the seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. It may not be as dramatic as that, But we've had 20 years of plenty. We've had 20 years of growing as an economy and becoming ever more wealthy as a society. I think those years are over. What does that mean for the churches? I think we need to understand that there's going to be mounting need. Um, As families are more and more unstable, as I was explaining, more and more mental health issues, more and more uh, need in a society around us, we've got to pivot to find ways to meet those needs better. Um, yes, the government must do a great deal. Yes, we have denominational welfare arms like Anglicare and Catholic Care and others. Those big organizations, most of them in doing a lot of aged care. But we've got to think about how we're going to meet the needs of a poorer society who will be be at our doorsteps. It is a challenging thought. It's a sobering thought. Mounting needs into the potentially decades to come and the idea that playing church is not enough. And I think, if anything, out of this conversation, Patrick Parkinson, you've been saying that church needs to be more serious about the biblical foundations and when it all comes down... We come back to what it is to make up what constitutes a family. And we're talking about marriage. We're talking about parenting responsibility. We're talking about how you actually get those things in place and what the church does to support the marriage and the family so that you can alleviate those issues where mental health is a challenge, where there are isolated, lonely rejected and uh, people who have been detached uh, from families over this time that has brought us to this point. Not only that, but church doing those things that are going to be meeting the needs of the vulnerable and the poor in the community. It's a sobering thing to think about this, but it's not the first time that church has been faced with this style of issue because through the history of the church, there's been ups and there's been downs. There's been times of revival and there's been times when there has been a scattering. And I imagine that when you think about these things, we're moving into a new phase of Australia's history that we need to take very seriously at this time. Yes. And if you look back on the history of re- revivals, Neil, I'm not an expert on these, these things, but I challenge you to think of one revival which has not translated into significant social action and concern for the poor and the vulnerable, for orphans, the orphan and the widow. Every revival I can think of, Wesley and Whitfield and others, it translated into concern for the poor and social justice. The Wesleyan Methodist revival 
empowered Wilberforce in his campaign to abolish slavery. So we can't separate out the spiritual and the concern, the love for God and love for our neighbor. They have to go hand in hand. We have to reconnect those two things. It surely is why the idea of revival needs to be at the forefront of Christian thinking, at the forefront of Christian planning and uh, preparation for revival. And uh, God brings the revival, but there is a certain sense in which we are a part of the preparation for that revival when God brings the revival. And uh, Professor Patrick Parkinson has been our guest, and we are running very short of time. I do want to say uh, that uh, you are going to be a part of the new college lectures, uh, the University of New South Wales. They have these each year, quite a prestigious thing to be invited to deliver the new college lectures. Uh, Patrick, I wonder whether you've got any, uh, just a, a thought or two here that you'll be sharing with academics and students when you stand before that new college lecture, uh, the sorts of things that you'll be reinforcing with them well it's a lot of the themes that we have um talked about neil but if i could say was in one sentence it is this we have to turn inward in order to turn outward we have to strengthen the foundations of our family community life in order to be able to turn outward into our local communities and to meet the needs that are going to be building up more and more in australian society in the years to come well, Professor Parkinson, I do hope we'll have another opportunity to talk before too long because there are changes that are coming and uh, those things are significant and I do certainly appreciate, as I believe listeners do today, uh, your insights into where we are at this time in Australia's history. Professor Patrick Parkinson has been our guest. He's the Dean of Law at the University of Queensland. And uh, there will be some who would say, well, how can I connect with uh, Professor Patrick Parkinson, is there a place where people can read uh, some of the things that you've written, or is that going to be closed to just people who are academics? Uh, how do people connect with you, Patrick? Well, anybody can uh, sign up for the New College Lectures. They'll be streamed all across the nation. Um, you can read about the work we're doing on freedomforfaith.org.au. Uh, just Google Freedom for Faith, and a lot of the work we're doing on religious freedom is is there. Um Otherwise, I do tend to be in the news affair bit. <laughs> That's good. Uh, freedomforfaith.org.au. And uh, for those who are interested in the legal aspects of what is happening, so far as the religious freedom in Australia, that is a great place to start, freedomforfaith.org.au. For those new college lectures, newcollege.unsw.edu.au. Professor Patrick Parkinson, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.